God willing, this evening. I'd like us to begin our thoughts in the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 10. We're interested in looking at the history of Babylon and the the setting of the book of Daniel that we might understand more that chapter we just read in Revelation and the things concerning the kingdoms of this world. So will you turn to Genesis chapter 10 where you'll remember I'm sure that we've got the generations of Noah and we're told of an individual who is particularly significant on the biblical record because uh, he built Babylon, or the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. So just let's go in at verse 8, where we read that Cush began Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Now that word before may suggest to us in the English that he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh, in a good sense. Far from it. This individual is a mighty hunter. That word before is elsewhere translated against. And that's the idea here, that this individual is a hunter against Yahweh. Now, the word hunter... We come across a few times in scripture. The next time we come across it is actually in Genesis 25. And you remember that Esau was a hunter. Um, so in Genesis 25 and verse 27, we read that the boys grew. Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, I'd suggest to you that that captures what nimrod's about nimrod if you like is this hunter now esau was a hunter of venison he, nimrod i think is a hunter of something far worse than that he's a, against yahweh and actually the suggestions are that quite possibly he's hunting those who stand with yahweh and so this man uh, is very much against god and like Esau, he's this cunning hunter. And in contrast to Jacob, who loved dwelling in tents or who dwelt in tents, he, Nimrod is going to build cities. OK, so my suggestion would be that you perhaps just make a note in your margin or in a notepad next to the word hunter. Genesis 25, 27, to see the contrast of Esau and Jacob. Now, we know that uh, Nimrod began to build, and we're told in verse 10 that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, that word Babel, look in your margin, if you've got an authorised version margin, it will simply tell you it's the word Babylon. And whenever you read of Babylon in scripture, it's this word. So it's almost unhelpful, I think, that we've got the word babel here in the the authorized version it's the word babylon so the beginning of his kingdom was babylon and that word means confusion so nimrod in building these vast kingdoms beginning at babylon and then erech and akkad and kaldai and the land of shinar 
just note that it's in this particular place. That's, of course, um, in Mesopotamia, um, in modern-day Iraq, um, down where the rivers Euphrates and Tigris run. This place is a place of confusion. That's significant for us to note now. And we're also interested in this phrase in verse 10, that the beginning of his kingdom. Now, where have you read previously in Genesis about the beginning? In the beginning. So the last time that we came across this phrase in the book of Genesis was right at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So just quickly flick back there. Because what we're going to see is that Nimrod, in the beginning of his kingdom, setting up a kingdom of confusion, is in stark contrast to God. In the beginning, Genesis 1 and verse 1, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth at this time was without form. Now, that Hebrew word form is elsewhere translated confusion. It was a place of confusion. It was void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. To be clear, it's not the same word, of course, as Babylon, Babel, but it means confusion. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So in the beginning, God separates light from darkness. He brings light out of confusion, which is what is upon the face of the deep, void and darkness. And so what... Nimrod is doing is changing that. Now, it's just interesting, isn't it, that we live in a world today where people are confused. This is uh, from LBC Radio, where the host tells uh, the, the, um, Matt Hancock, the, the, the Secretary of um, Health in the UK, he says, people are confused by the government's coronavirus rule. So here he's telling the minister, look, there's confusion that's raining everywhere. And we shouldn't be surprised. The world offers confusion. Babylon is about confusion. And yet the God of the Bible says, I can take you from a state of confusion, from a place without form and void, where darkness reigns, and I can bring light. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. It's in the context of the ecclesias. And so he talks, as in all the ecclesias, of the saints. And so the call for us is to allow ourselves to get out of darkness and into light, out of a state of confusion, which is what the world still offers today, which is what the governments of the world offer. They, men may do their very best, but in the end, 
It will only bring about confusion. And so God is not the author of confusion, rather of peace. Now we're in Genesis 1, and I just want you to make a note in verse 26 and 27 that the pinnacle of God's creation, of course, is the creation of mankind. And we read in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So as God creates the world, he creates a world of order, of light, out of chaos, confusion and darkness. And God said, the Elohim say, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, male and female, created he them. And so in Genesis 2 and verse 7, we read how it was that God created man, how the Elohim created him. So we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, I'd like you to note that, that man has been formed of the dust. Now, that Hebrew word dust can be translated powder. It's not surprising, is it? The idea of dust is like dirty powder, isn't it? The Lord God formed man of the dust, the powder of the ground, as man is made in the image of God, in the image of the Elohim. Now, come back with me, if you would, to the record of Nimrod's building, because following on from this, we read the story of Babel, which we understand, don't we, is about Babylon. And we know that the whole earth, Genesis 11 verse 1, was of one language, of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed, from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there so here they are in the land of Shinar this is where Babylon is being built this is where the tower of Babel is going to be built and they said one to another go to let us make brick and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and slime for mortar now it's just interesting that the words used there for brick, we see in the Exodus record, used again and again and again, about the bricks that we used to build Egypt, where the Israelite slaves had to create bricks. In Ezekiel chapter 4, we read of a brick that is written on in Babylon. So this word, I'd suggest to you, is very much about the bricks of Babylon, the bricks of Egypt. And that's important for us to note, because Egypt, Babylon, is one and the same system. Um, we won't go there, but a good note to, to make of that is Revelation 11 and verse 7, where we read of the great city, which is Babylon, or the Roman system, and it says that that city which is Egypt and Sodom. And so just look at this, verse 3 of, Re of Genesis chapter 11, that they had brick for stone and slime for mortar. Now that word slime 
We only come across it in three places. It's in Genesis 14, which is about Sodom, and in Exodus chapter 2, which is about Egypt. So this slime also captures for us what the thinking around Babylon and Babel being built is. Don't think one minute I'm suggesting to you that the slime has come from Sodom or Egypt. I'm suggesting to you that the system is all the same thing. The building is made of the same materials. And so we read, don't we, that they said, go to, let's make a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. So they want to, to build a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven. Now I put a picture there, which was actually taken from um, a painting, painted hundreds of years ago. Uh, but that picture is used to depict the European Parliament, um, which amazingly was based on a painting that uh, an old artist did of Babylon, of Babel. Now, of course, um, it's not so old that he was actually there painting Babel. It was his impression of it. But isn't it amazing that in Europe today, we see men's best efforts to recreate the Tower of Babel. Let's make a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name. And so... Uh, the, these articles are old. Europe's new Tower of Babel. The European Parliament, this is six years ago, is about to become no noisier, more unruly, more confusing, and more difficult to deal with as a result of the European elections. Note the phrase, more confusing. That's what Babylon means. Why is the Strasbourg Parliament based on the Tower of Babel? The whole world knows that that parliament is based on the Tower of Babel. But of great significance, and I'd like you to note this phrase in verse 4, whose top may reach to heaven. I put there in green on the screen. We'll come to that uh, towards the end of our study this evening. But Genesis 12 is set in contrast to this. So we've seen that Genesis 10, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom, that takes us back to Genesis 1, and the contrast between God's creation and what Nimrod is creating. But Genesis 12 is set in contrast to Genesis 11. What do we read? Genesis 12, verse 1. The, the Yahweh said to Abraham, Get out of thy country. Now what do they say in Genesis 11? Go to. So God says to Abraham, get out, get out of thy country. Well, his country, he's from, of course, just go back to the previous chapter, verse 31, Ur of the Chaldees. The, the Chaldees, you'll remember that immediately, the Chaldeans, they're the Babylonians. So he comes from Ur of the Chaldees, he comes from the region of Babylon and Yahweh said to him verse 1 get out 
of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make. Now look what they say. This is 11. Verse 4. Let us make. These are the same Hebrew words. Let us make. And what do they want to make for themselves? They want to make, make for themselves a name. What God says to Abraham is get out of thy country, from thy kindred, from my father's house, to a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And so the call of Abraham is to get out of Babylon. And Abraham, of course, stands on the scriptural record for all time as the quintessential example, as the man of faith. And so if we want to have the faith of Abraham, faith that was counted to him for righteousness, and because he was counted to him for righteousness, he's going to be in the kingdom. He's going to have all of these lands. He's going to have a great name. He'll be a great nation. Because he had the faith to get out of the system of Babylon. To be like his grandson Jacob was. A dweller in tents. In contrast to Nimrod and the thinking of Babylon. And so we see that right back here in the book of beginnings. We are given the origins of Babylon. That the thinking of Babylon. So when we come to the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 2. And we read of the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams of. We're not surprised to see that the head of gold of this image is Babylon. The thinking that Nimrod had all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, where he set up a kingdom opposed to what God wanted. Completely different to Abraham. That here Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream where the head of gold, the thinking of Babylon, is the head of this image. And young people, this is something that once we understand, we see that the continuous history in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation is so much easier for us to grasp. That all of it is based upon the thinking of Babylon. The thinking of men like Nimrod, who stood up in pride against the God of the Bible. And so that thinking of Babylon runs now through the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and into the legs of iron, into the Roman Empire. In Daniel chapter 7, we're given further detail, aren't we, about these kingdoms. And we see that these kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, are represented by various beasts. In Just turn to Daniel chapter 7. We read 
of the Babylonian system with the lion's body and eagle's wings. We read of the Medo-Persian system as a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, the Medo-Persian system. We read of a leopard with four wings, the, the Greek system of Alexander the Great that came uh, swiftly onto the scene. And then we read of the fourth beast. Verse 7 of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth, of course the legs of iron, the legs of Rome. It devoured and break in pieces. It stamped the residue with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. And so this great, this dreadful and terrible beast, which is strong exceedingly, aligns with the might of Rome. And yet even the might of Rome is filled with the thinking of Babylon. And we've got to make sure that we've got this in our minds for us to appreciate what happens through Daniel and the book of Revelation. So the slide on the screen there shows you at the top those beasts of Daniel. And you see that when we come to the book of Revelation, we're simply building on the image of Daniel chapter 2, the beasts of Daniel chapter 7. That these beasts morph now and they change. In Revelation 12, we see a great red dragon with seven heads and the ten horns. Well, this beast of verse 7 of Daniel 7 had ten horns, didn't it? When we come to Revelation 13, we see a beast that's just like this. It's European. And look what the beast is made up of in Revelation 13. It's on the screen there. Well, it's got ten horns. But it's also got seven crowns. It's also got the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of the lion. Whose thinking is coming out the mouth? The Babylonish thinking. But we're told, aren't we, that it's got seven heads for good reason. Because in Revelation 17, and have a look there on the screen at Revelation 17, where we read of the woman, the church system riding the European beast, we see that the seven heads, and we need to look in Revelation 17, which we won't do for now, correlate to the seven hills of Rome. And so the additional detail of the beasts tell us that no longer is it simply a Babylonish or a Greek beast. This is a Rome beast. The thinking of Babylon with the claws and the feet of the Greek Empire, with the body of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's what the book of Revelation shows us in these beasts that morph. We're being taught and shown that these beast systems are based on the thinking of Babylon. These Roman beasts are Babylonian in origin. Now we're in the book of Babylon, but I'd like you to turn back to Daniel chapter 3. I need to 
highlight these things a little more clearly to us. So Daniel 3, you'll all remember, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who do not allow themselves to bow down to the Babylonian image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, we'll see that in Daniel chapter 3, we're given a blueprint, really, that we're able to use then further on in Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, where we're challenged as the saints to not allow ourselves to fall down before the thinking of Babylon, the thinking of Rome. So Daniel chapter 3, we read in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. Just interesting to see the language there, aren't we? Of 66, 66 cubits. He set it in the plain of Jura, in the province of Babylon. Now, look in your margin next to the phrase plain of Jura. And my margin certainly says Genesis 11 and verse 2, where we read of the plain of Shinar. Uh, we could also have in the margin Daniel 1 and verse 2. The land of Shinar is where Babylon is. So this plain, the plain of Jura, which suggests is very much aligned to the plain of Shinar that we see in the Genesis record and at the beginning of the book of Daniel. And he sets this image up that we know is an image of gold. So what he's done, hasn't he, is in reaction to Daniel chapter 2, the previous chapter, where he's dreamt, and Daniel has explained to him what his dream means, of the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron. He's thought, no way, I'm not having that, pal. Not for me. And although he's so impressed that Daniel does know these things, as clearly he mulls them over, he finds himself thinking, I've got to change this. I need the whole image to be an image of gold. As Babylon was the head of gold, I want the image, the whole image, to be of gold. And so he sets this golden image up, up the thinking of Babylon. And we read that he um, says to all the people that when they hear the sound, verse 5, the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. So here's a king, and you'll see all the way through uh, Daniel chapter 3, we see the language of Nebuchadnezzar setting up. So the end of verse 2, the king hath set up. Verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king stuck. Again, at the end of verse 5, we just read the end of verse 7, the end of verse 12, the end of verse 14, and so on, verse 18. But what we're seeing is that Nebuchadnezzar has set himself up. And now he wants the people and worship him. The golden image that Nebuchadnezzar hath set up. Now, 
here's the contrast. I suggest you that you make a note in your margin of Revelation 13 and verse 15. Revelation 13, verse 15. Because, and just keep a, a, a hand in Daniel, but perhaps just flick to Revelation, where we don't have the time to expand each chapter, but we can see that in Revelation 13, and verse 15, we have this same language. Now, this is related to the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, the Holy Roman Empire set the Pope up to uh, be in the papal states of Rome. He was the, uh, the, 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 the Pope not only was religiously in charge of that area, but politically. And so what you've got in Revelation 13 is the image of the beast. And look what we read in verse 15, that he had power, so, so the beast of the earth had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now that's what we're seeing, isn't it, in Daniel chapter 3, that they have to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar hath set up. Okay, let's go back to, to Daniel. And in verse 15, we read, Now, if you be ready, that what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the sultry, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, you will be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. You've got the same phrase in verse 6, the same hour. Now, those of you who know the book of Revelation well will know immediately that that's interesting because we just read, didn't we, in Revelation chapter 18, that Babylon will fall. And we're told in verse 10, in one hour is thy judgment come. And so the contrast is given to us that Babylon in an hour is going to fall. It's not actually an hour. In fact, we think it's likely to be a 30-year period. We haven't got time to look at that now. But needless to say, symbolically, this in this hour, Babylon is going to fall. And of course, in Daniel chapter 3, in the same hour, those who would not worship the image, their judgment would come. They would be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. In Daniel 3 and verse 28, we read that Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, once he's cottoned on to the truth because he's seen the angel walking in the fire with the three men that he's cast in. He's seen his own men being killed. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. Now, in Revelation 7, we read that the servants of God would be sealed. They'll be protected by God. His angels will work to seal them in their foreheads. Now, where are they sealed? They're sealed in their foreheads. The Babylonian image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of, the forehead was of gold. The Babylonian thinking. But we've got to make sure that our thinking, our foreheads, are full of the name of God. That we don't get caught up 
with worshipping the beast or the image of the beast. Just one more in Daniel. In chapter 3 here, we read that they yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their god. And so in Revelation chapter 22, we read, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image. Actually, that's Revelation 20, not 22. Apologies, Revelation 20 and verse 4. So, Daniel chapter 3 isn't just a Sunday school story that young children can understand. It's talking of something far more profound that children are taught. And that is that we cannot get caught up with the thinking, with the culture, the music, the mindset of Babylon. What we have to do is be prepared to stand up for the God of Israel. And it's not always easy. In fact, frequently, it's really challenging. But I don't suppose that many of us have been faced with such a dilemma that either we're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace or we're going to speak the truth. And so we've got to have the courage to not fall down to the thinking of Babylon, but to stand up for the God of the Bible, for the God of Israel, the God of Daniel. Now, we saw in Revelation chapter 13 that what they did is make, as it were, an image to the beast, or there is an image to the beast that... Um, People had to worship uh, during the time of the Roman Empire. And we saw, didn't we, that right in the book of beginnings, in Genesis chapter 1, that in the creation story, not only does God bring light out of confusion and darkness, the pinnacle of his creation is to make man in the image of the Elohim, in the image of God. And what tragically the system of Babylon, the system of Rome has done, is change this. And so when the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, what does he warn them of? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we read in verse 22, that men have professing themselves to be wise became fools now in the book of daniel i think if we ask children really young children where we come across wise men they could tell us you remember daniel chapter 2 that the wise men were unable to interpret the dream they didn't even know what he dreamt so they were men who were professing to be wise and they became fools they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. So that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had been given, which showed the history of the world that was going to unfold, which showed to him the future of the world, of course, 
They changed it. And they made it into the image of a man. Nebuchadnezzar made an image which I have set up. And they worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so, young people, we've got to ensure that in our lives, we are not getting caught up with the thinking of the age. The thinking of Rome and Babylon. We've got to have the courage to stand aside from it, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We've got to ensure that we don't allow in our lives to, to set up ourselves images, which we end up worshipping. If we do, we're no different from the wise men of Babylon. Now, we want to follow Nebuchadnezzar's image. From the head of gold, through the chest and arms of silver, the, the belly of brass, the Greeks, through the legs of iron. Because we understand that those legs of iron split, just like the chest and arms of silver were the Medes and the Persians, the two arms, so the legs represent the two sides of the Roman Empire. And you'll know that the time of Constantine, Constantinople was set up. He named that city after himself. The city in modern terms is called Istanbul in Turkey. And Constantinople was set up. And I always think it's amazing that if you look on the history, if you go to Istanbul today, you can do a tour of the seven hills of Istanbul of Constantinople. Now we know, don't we, from Revelation 17, do you want to just quickly go there, that one of the key identifiers of the Roman system is that the seven heads of the beast, Revelation 17 verse 9, are seven mountains. So as Rome itself was set on seven mountains, so when Constantine chose a capital to be in the east of the empire of Rome, he chose Constantinople, as he called it. He chose a city built on seven hills. So Constantine splits Rome. And what you have then is the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. He, he himself reigned over it all. Uh, the, the, Rome was used as the sort of religious centre and Constantinople was used as a political centre. But over time, the whole of the empire split and you had Western and Eastern, Rome the capital of the West and Constantinople being the capital of the East. Now, just sticking with the Western leg, and I'll call it the Western leg because it keeps reminding us that this is from Nebuchadnezzar's image. The thinking of Babylon pervades it all. But now we've got two legs of the empire. And the western leg was, uh, although, the, although Constantine set up the capital um, in Constantinople, after him you had different emperors ruling in Constantinople and in Rome, and they carried the title of the Pontifex Maximus. Uh, just read the uh, script there on the screen, just taken from Wikipedia where we read that the Pontifex Maximus was the chief high priest of the College of Pontiffs of ancient Rome. 
It was a distinctly religious office under the early Roman Republic. It gradually became politicized until beginning with Augustus. And of course, Augustus was the Caesar reigning at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, Augustus Caesar. It was subsumed into the imperial office. Its last use with reference to the emperors is inscriptions of Gratian, who reigned not long after Constantine in 375 and 383. And he was the emperor in Rome, and he decided to not allow himself to be the Pontifex Maximus any longer. Now, the Pontifex Maximus is significant, that title that was used by the Roman emperors for hundreds of years. It means, Maximus obviously the greatest, the great bridge builder. Now, this is significant because... It was a title used of bishop that became the title used by the emperors. And it meant more than simply that we could build bridges, although history suggests that that also was important. However, we're told there, it was also understood in its symbolic sense as well, the pontifices were the ones who smoothed the bridge between gods and men. And... It was recognized entire pagan title. Notice the word there in Wikipedia between gods, the pagan gods and men. So it was like a mediator between the pagan gods of Rome and men, the bridge builder. And when you look today at a euro note, as I said, I'm in France at the moment and we're using euros, but on the back of every single note of no matter how much the currency is worth you'll see bridges this european symbol of the pontifex maximus and i'm sure you know or you can guess who holds the title of pontifex maximus gratian said i can't do this my office is political he was a young emperor by the way and so, no doubt, the Bishop of Rome was in his ear saying, are you sure this title's one that you really should have as the emperor? You're a political person in office. Really, I'm the one who is the Bishop of Rome. I should have it. And so the popes today hold the title of the Roman emperors, the Pontifex Maximus. That title, which is used in symbol across all of the European currency. You're in Revelation 17. We know we will do it at the end. The European nations in verse 13 will have one mind and they'll give their power and strength to the beast. Well, the power of any country is its currency, is its money, its financial system. And that power see on the euro notes today. And so over time, happened in the Roman Empire, this Babylonian system, we put the image there of Nebuchadnezzar on the split down the dragon power. And then in Revelation 15, we read about the beast and the dragon power 
was the power on the eastern side of the empire, the political center of Rome, and the, the beast was the Roman Catholic system that took down the saints, the true believers. And we, we know that this is what happened because in Revelation 13, just turn back there, and verse 4, we read that they worship the dragon which have gave power to the beasts. And that's exactly what happened. The, the dragon, the emperors on the eastern side that were more powerful than those in the west who had been, the, the West Empire had been broken apart by the barbarians. But over time, we know that Justinian and after him, Focus said, you know what? The Pope should be the person who's got complete power over churches of the earth, over the Roman Empire. And so the dragon power of the, the East gave power, religious power, to the left. And then many years later, the empire split further, but you still see it split down the middle of East and West, because in the East, they actually said, you know what, we want, uh, we want to have our own uh, take on Christianity became the Eastern Orthodox Church. But all of this, we understand, when we trace back Nebuchadnezzar's image, we simply go up the iron legs, and before long, we're at the thing of Babylon. Whether in the East or in the West, it's the Babylonish thinking. Now, the Eastern Empire collapsed in 1453. The Roman Empire finished, as the Turk came sweeping through uh, the territory from the and they came from the south east, they came up and Constantinople in the year 1453 collapsed. But why is this so significant? Because when we move to the world as we know it today, we're told that Vladimir Putin, the head of Russia, wants to take the Byzantine history of the Roman empires and he wants to use that in his own culture today. So we read in recent history, historians are reclaiming this Byzantine history and its Russian legacy. Under Vladimir Putin, history has been largely Byzantine. Putin has associated Russia with Byzantium in ways that are apparent to countries an Orthodox legacy, but not necessarily clear to the rest of the world. If you recognize the double-headed eagle of Byzantium, Russian uniforms over the last decade make a lot of sense. Russia is reclaiming the legacy of Byzantium, of Rome, of antiquity, of Orthodox Christianity. Now, why is this so important? Well, in 1453, the eastern leg of Rome collapsed. And the Muslims, the Ottoman Turks, came in, and they took over. But in more recent years, Russia is taking control of this region as much as they possibly can. We've seen them drop in Syria. Uh, we've seen them interfere in Turkey, uh, in the Ukraine. Um, we've seen that Russia is asserting its authority 
in wanting to put the Roman culture, the legacy of Byzantium, onto the territory and the area. Now, this is so important, because when the Ottoman Turk took Constantinople in 1453, what happened to Christianity? Well, it moved. So the Roman power that we see there, symbolized as the eagle, we're seeing used today by Russia as the double-headed eagle. Now, if you look at what the double-headed eagle means, we're simply told it's associated with the concept of empire. The symbol is directly or indirectly associated with its use by the Roman or Byzantine Empire, whose use, use of it represented the empire's dominion over the Near East, that's the eastern leg of the empire, and the West. And so what Putin is wanting to do is assert his authority not simply over the Byzantium Empire of the East, he's going to want to assert his authority as well. He wants to be the double-headed eagle over the West as well. So this is why articles like this have been so interesting just in the last month or so, where I'm sure that you have seen that the Hagia Sophia, which is, or was rather, a museum in Istanbul, in Constantinople, has been reverted by the Turkish government to be a mosque. And there's been international outcry that the Pope, we read, is pained as Istanbul Museum reverts to mosque. Moscow says it regrets Turkey's Hagia Sophia move. So do you see that Turkey is trying to hold on to power and say, no, we're, we're the Ottomans. We took over this territory in 1453. We, we want to see the crescent moon of Islam in this area. And so it's been turned back to a mosque and how Russia then is saying, look, we'll, we'll, don't worry, we'll help you build a rep replica in Syria, which is just interesting, isn't it? When you think that Syria, of course, is still a Muslim country. That's how much Russia is asserting their authority over this region. It's why Russians call Moscow the third Rome, because when... The um, Turkish uh, power, the Muslim power, moved into Rome, into Constantinople in 1453. They needed a Christian capital in the east, and so Moscow became that capital. The Orthodox monk uh, wrote um, uh, in the 1500s, two Romes fell, that means Rome and Constantinople, a third stands. There'll not be a fourth. And so he's talking of Moscow. So just on the screen there, the Constantinople became the second Rome, the capital of the truly Christian world. So in the Hagia Sophia Museum, I don't know if this has been take, taken down since it's been uh, made a mosque this last month, but actually you can see this mosaic where we have the three Romes. So that's why Putin today is so significant, because he heads up the third Rome. He is the power, the dragon power, that's going to drop down into this territory and he'll stand, whether it's him, we, we, we seem, seem sure from the signs of the times it will be because we don't know it will be him, but whoever is in control of that area will drop down the dragon power and stand as Nebuchadnezzar's image with one foot, the eastern leg in Constantinople and another leg in Rome. Vladimir Putin, 
follows a long Russian tradition of enlightened autocrats. Like the Tsars, he sometimes shares power. The Tsars, the Russian Tsars, that's simply the word Caesar. Trump's disgrace in the Middle East, the death of an empire, Vladimir Putin is Caesar now. An article from uh, just the end of last year. This article just blows me away. Tyrant he may be, they say, of Putin, but at least he's sane. His legions stayed out of the war in Syria and saved the Assad regime. They cleared the highways of ISIS mines. They restored the roads, sometimes, incredibly, what were once Roman roads, and they learned Arabic. Perhaps, indeed, now look at this now, Putin now plays the role of the later Roman Empire of the East. The Christian one which survived in Constantinople, Byzantium, Istanbul for hundreds more years after the fall of Rome itself in 476. All the Middle East is now his empire. Every capital welcoming the emperor. That's an extraordinary article written just in the last year that shows us what the world's thinking is right now about Vladimir Putin as the emperor, the Roman emperor of the East. And so this is why we're so amazed, because Brother Thomas, writing in the middle of the 1800s, said to warn us, the Russian autocracy in its plenitude, on the verge of its dissolution, is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing on the Mount of Israel, ready to be smitten by the stone. So in other words, that thinking of Babylon, that's come right down through the legs of iron, that stands in the east now, in the person right now of Putin, that when he is ready to make his grand move, when Russia makes its grand mill move for the building up of its image empire, let the reader know that the end of all things at present constituted is at hand. We're seeing the Russian empire expanding. We're seeing them in Syria. We wonder that before long they'll drop into Turkey. Just to be warned, Brother Thomas certainly suggests that actually, by the time that the Russian drops into Constantinople, the Lord Jesus Christ will already have returned. And when he does, he will create an army that young people, we hope that we're going to be part of, that will march to save the Jewish people caught up in Jerusalem as the Gogian Confederacy has swept down through the land and left devastation. They'll surround Jerusalem and they'll want the last of the people to fall. But we, as the rainbowed angel, with all the saints, will come and will save them. And a great earthquake will go off that will destroy that image. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It will stand forever. And so the call of Babylon is fallen, will go up. The Babylonian system won't be utterly destroyed when uh, the events of Armageddon take place, when the Russian power and all the confederate with him will be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. But it will be the beginning of that fall. When in one hour, over a 30-year period, from this point, Babylon will be destroyed. 
not just politically, but also religiously. Whosoever shall fall on that stone, the Lord Jesus said, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And so the grinding down of the nations will begin. All the kings of the world will be consumed by this. And so we have a choice, don't we? From dust we are, to, to dust to powder, we will return. Unless we're prepared to have the courage to stand aside from the thinking of Nimrod, from the Babylonian system, and align ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the events of Revelation 16 of Armageddon, when this system will fall on the mountains of Israel. And so, young people, our final slide, we've got a choice. What do we want in our lives? Do we want confusion? The world's got confusion today. Or do we want order in our lives? The God of the Bible is not the author of confusion, but of peace. If you want a peace that can pass all understanding, we have to ensure that we step out of darkness. We step out of the chaos and the confusion that the world offers. And we step into the light, to the order and the peace that God offers to us. We've got to challenge ourselves. In whose image do we want to conform to? Do we want to be like the Elohim, in whose image we've been made? Or do we want to get caught up with the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that which he has made? Do we want to get caught up with the image of the beast and that system? Or do we want to be in the image of the Elohim? Just turn our last references that we'll look up together. Romans chapter 12. We're told, aren't we, that we can't allow ourselves to be conformed to the thinking of this world. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so just think what... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Look at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. They did it. Holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Don't allow yourselves to get caught up with bowing down to the thinking of Babylon. Be not conformed to this world. Don't allow your, 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 your mind to be conformed into an image of this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, I prove what's the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That word, uh, be not conformed, is used by Peter. In fact, that's the only other time it's used in 1 Peter chapter 1. Just quickly flick a few pages to come there. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, we're told, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Hope to the end for the grace that's brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves, there's that word, conformed, 
not fashioning yourselves, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. So what is it to be holy? To be holy, we're told, is to be separate. We've got to separate ourselves from the world and the thinking of the world. Because in the end, that thinking, the systems of Babylon are going to fall, politically and religiously. So the psalmist sums it up for us. Man that's in honour and understands not is like the beasts that perish. In the end, unless we align ourselves to the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man whose image we need to be after, we sing, don't we? We shall be like him. Oh, how rich the promise. Do you want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we've got to try today to be like him. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said that we've got to come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, not the measure of the stature of Nebuchadnezzar's image, of the beasts of the world, because they're going to perish. And so, young people, we've got to come, the Apostle Paul wrote the Ephesians, in the unity of the faith. That was the characteristic that Abraham had. And so in Revelation chapter 18, that we read together, we saw that the call for the saints through the ages has been to come out of her. Just turn finally to Revelation 18. And we'll see that our thoughts just tie together. I heard another voice. Verse 4 saying, come out of her, my people. Verse 2 tells that Babylon the great is falling. It's going to fall. Come out of her, my people. While you've got opportunity, while you've got time, today, come out of her, that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. Her sins have reached to heaven. What did Nimrod and company do? When they built Babylon, they built that city and the tower that its top may reach to heaven. Her sins have reached to heaven. So put in your margin, Genesis 11 and verse 4, next to Revelation 18 and verse 5. In one hour is the judgment going to come on that system. And so, young people, today, make a wise decision. Make that choice to come out of the darkness, of the thinking of the world, of the thinking of Babylon and Rome, Align yourselves that you might grow, that you might come in faith as Abraham did to get out of that system and to grow into the measure and the, of the stature of the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ.